All right, good morning. Morning, Anthem Church. Yeah, first service was way more awake than you guys. You guys just get used to hitting the snooze, and you're like, might as well just snooze through church, too? Or... All right, good to see you guys. Woo, let's do this. All right, church. Matthew 5, 27 through 30 is where we are at this morning. We are continuing our study through the Sermon on the Mount. Please find your way there. That's where we will spend our time today. As you are making your way there, I want to ask the question, how serious is sin? How big of a deal is it? How big of a problem is sin? Is it like a pimple? You remember those? I do. (laughs) Some of you might still be like, remember, I saw one this morning. (laughs) Hello, old friend. Uh, You remember pimples? Uh, Everybody has them. Everybody pretends like they don't. Everybody's a little embarrassed that they do have them. Everybody wishes they didn't. Everybody, when they see them on other people, are like, oh. And if they, like, you're like, do I tell them? <laughs> do they, would they want to know? Am I a good friend if I point it out? Am I a bad friend? I remember I had this, uh, this cream that I put on when I was in high school. It was, like, it was flesh color. And I don't know, it didn't apparently come in multiple colors of flesh because it didn't match mine. <laughs> but it was supposed to help with pimples. And I put it on, and it basically served as a pimple highlighter. <laughs> and I don't know if it helped the pimples go away or not, but it certainly drew attention to everybody that I had one. Is that, how, is that, is that what sin's like? It's all kind of common. We all kind of have it. Who hasn't had one? What's the big deal? Cover it up with a little makeup. It'll be fine. It'll go away. You'll grow out of it. You'll get old enough someday you won't have pimples anymore. Is that what sin is? We just kind of get better and grow out of it. Or is it a little bit more serious? Is it, is it like a wart? Warts are gross. <laughs> I've had one. I can <laughs> they're grosser. They're not as common as pimples. They're, not everybody's had one. Um, when you do, like they're, they're a little bit more serious, uh, a little bit more unsightly. I remember when I was in my young 20s, I had one here right in the corner of my hand. And I would see it every time I did anything because it was on my right hand, and I really didn't like it. So being a young 20-year-old and being industrious, I took a box cutter and cut it off because I didn't like it. (laughs) And it's my wart, and I want it gone. So I took a box cutter and and cut it off, and it came back because warts are stubborn like that. They have roots in your system. And so I dug deeper the second time. Right, because that's, that's only logical, right? <laughs> what else would I do? Well, it turns out that there's medicine that works far better than box cutters. And uh, <laughs> so I found that wart went away, problem solved. Is that how serious sin is? It's a little grosser, a little bit more serious, a little more invasive, requires something more, though, than just time. Maybe it's not as common. Maybe, maybe real serious sins is something only some people have. Maybe, maybe that's what sin is like. Maybe it's like cancer. Cancer is a lot more serious. Not as common. Not everybody's had it, although it's starting to become more common. Most people know somebody who's had cancer. You have cancer, it's serious. You're willing to endure difficult things to get rid of it. If you find out you have cancer, the next thing you ask is, what do we need to do? And you're, you're prepared to do what you need to do, so much so that people lose parts of their body in order to keep it from getting to the rest of your body. Because cancer is serious, and it doesn't want to just stay where it's found. It wants to spread. If it's, if it's of the, the aggressive kind, it wants to move. It wants to take over. And so if you find out that you have it, you hope it's on the front end, and you hope that you can do something about it, or if worse comes to worse, cut that part off in order to save the rest of your whole body. Is that how serious sin is? Or is it worse than that? Is it, is it that your heart is bad, and you need a heart transplant? Is sin so bad that it's at the core of who we are that the only thing that could fix it is to be cut open and have it removed and have an alternate one put in? Is sin so bad that somebody else would have to die 
in order for my problem to go away. It's so, so serious that I would have to be knocked out, cut open, and have a different heart put in. Is that how serious sin is? And, and, that, and who's had a heart transplant? Not by show of hands. Not many. Is that, is that how serious, serious? Sin is like that. It's very serious, but only a few people really need that kind of thing. Most people can get by with the makeup. For most people, it's just the pimple. Is that what it is? This morning, we're looking at that. Jesus answers the question of how serious sin is. Let's look at the first two verses, 27 and 28. Jesus says, You've heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now listen to what Jesus says. The way that he sets this up is the way that we would normally make something less. We would say, you've heard it said that you shouldn't speed, but we all know you can go five over and they're not going to pull you over anyways. That's how we would normally set this kind of thing up, right? We would say this, and then the next thing we would say would kind of lessen it. We're like, you've heard it said, but really, that's stuffy. Like, we're good. That's how we would do it. But look what Jesus does. He says, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery. He doesn't say, Adultery schmaltery. Those stuffy old Pharisees and their law. They're so technical. Don't worry about it. It's fine. He doesn't lighten it up. He screws it down. He tightens it. He makes it harder, more difficult, more serious. Sin is not just a small thing. It's a heavy thing. The problem with the Pharisees, we all look at the Pharisees and we know that they're the bad guys because we've read enough Christian little story Bibles to know. So we think their problem was that they took to us too seriously. Right? They're stuffy old footloose dads. We just don't want anybody to have fun. Stop dancing, you crazy kids. Like that's what, so when we come to this, we think, well, the problem is that they took it too seriously. Jesus says they didn't take it seriously enough. They thought God could be bought off by just not going into somebody else's bedroom. Jesus says, you shall not commit adultery in other people's beds. You've heard it said that. I say to you, don't commit adultery in your heart. Adultery is not just a problem of which bedroom you end up in. It's what's going on inside your heart wherever you sleep. The problem of sin is far worse than just technicalities and obeying some rules. Think of it as what you do like cheating. You've all heard of cheating, right? You've seen daytime television. <laughs> that seems to be the topic du jour every day. On t- and I've seen enough daytime television to know that cheating is bad. <laughs> and it can get a chair thrown at you if you do it. <laughs> and once a cheater, always a cheater. <laughs> we know all these things, right? Cheating is bad. Don't do it. But is the problem with cheating solved by just not committing? Right? Is, that, is that the heart? Is the problem with cheating is that I promised we were dating and we were exclusive and then I, is that the problem? Is the problem with cheating, that just, so just don't commit. Just don't make commitments to people, then you can't cheat. Problem solved. Is that how we solve it? Like Ross all taught us from Friends, if you're on a break, it doesn't count. If you haven't seen Friends, they're on a break. <laughs> That's what Ross says. So he's free to do what he wants because we're, we're on a break. I can do what I want with whoever else. We weren't dating at the time. So let's say you do that and you come back and you say, we were on a break. We good now? Even if let's say he wins the argument, does that solve it? Is Rachel happy to take him back? Or would you be happy, lady, if your guy took a break, went on a gentleman's intermission, went spent some time with some other lady that comes back and says, hey, we're good now, me and you. We were on breaks. So it doesn't count. Is that the problem with cheating? Is that the problem with adultery? No, it's the oneness. It's the fact that you would do it at all. It's the fact that you would take your eyes or your heart there at all is part of the problem. Look at Hebrews 13, verse 4. I have it up on a slide for you. It says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral 
and adulterous. Adultery is the topic that Jesus is addressing. The problem is lust. Marriage being honored by all. That means single people. You might not think, well, I'm not married. I don't know. What do I have to do? Like, if I know if I get married, I should keep my promises because I stood before God and man and a bunch of people and we got dressed up and served fancier food than we normally would see. And so I should probably keep my promise. That thing was expensive and I want to do that again. <laughs> right? Is that the problem? Single people, you can honor marriage now by saving yourself for it, by thinking, by honoring what it will be like to have one person that you set your side of self for covenant love to that one person. You do that now. You do that as a single person. You do that as, by loving the people you know who are married. Children, by honoring your parents, by not separating them, by asking dad one thing and then going asking mom something to try and get a different answer. Don't separate your parents. Don't try and separate what God has joined together. Don't listen to your friends talk down their spouses to you. Now, be a good friend, and if, but if, tell them, hey, have you talked to your spouse about this? Because it seems like they're the one you should be talking to. Don't let people divide. Don't be the one who dishonors their marriage by letting them do it in your presence. Guys, if you have a friend who's doing that, tell them, like, you don't ever talk about your wife to me like that. If you have a problem with her, talk to her. But don't vent about your wife to me. I'm not going to help you divide your own marriage. I'm not going to be that person. And the marriage bed needs to be undefiled, it says, for God will judge the sexual immoral and the adulterous. The problem with keeping the marriage bed pure is not just a matter of who's in the bedchamber. It's what's going on in the chambers of the hearts of the people in whatever beds they sleep. Jesus said the problem isn't just the bed. We keep it pure by keeping our hearts pure in the first place. Jesus now gives us an example you saw of what he means. Like, what's, what, so Jesus, what do you say for example? He says, but I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Normal, everyday example. Any Tuesday afternoon, this could happen. Just a regular example. A guy looks at a woman with lustful intent. Look at a couple of things that he, in even giving this as an example, notice what he's saying. It's not the looking that is the sin. Like just noticing that there are attractive things in the world is not a sin. Just noticing that there's an attractive person around is not a sin. Noticing things is not a problem. It's what you do with what you notice. It's the creative license that you take with what you see. It's what, you, what's, it's what your brain runs off to. Like nobody, I gave this example first, if nobody sees a sunset and then does a double take and be like, oh man, that sunset was pretty, but can you imagine if that cloud wasn't there? You don't do that. But you can appreciate it and move on. You can accept it for what it is and move on with life. You don't spend the rest of your day wrecked by it, trying to recapture it, looking up pictures on the internet of sunsets, going on Instagram, hashtag sunsets. I don't know, is that a thing? Probably is. <laughs> There's a hashtag for all of it. It's, it's the creative license that what we do with what we see. And what the Bible calls this is idolatry. The problem with lust is inherently that it's an idolatry problem, just like all sins comes down to idolatry. If you break in the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, you automatically break the second one. You shall make no other images. Whenever we don't keep the first one, we break the second one. We find something else to worship. We create a world in our own image. We make people into characters in a story, and we use them as means to an end to serve whatever our plot devices serve for us. So we turn people into whatever we want them to be. And look what it says in Colossians 3, verse 5. He says, the Apostle Paul says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, which is our Greek word there for lust, and covetousness, which is idolatry. 
It's like, it's idolatry. When you do these things, you are trying to make a world in your own image. You're trying to make characters do things that they wouldn't actually do. They're real people. They're not puppets for you to arrange in your mind. They're not furniture that you can rearrange in the room of your mind and make them do whatever you want to do or sit in front of wherever you want to. They're not pieces and plot devices for you. He says, no, put to death this kind of thing in you. Put to death this idea that people are means to your ends, that you can use them to get what you want out of them. People are not primarily for your glory. They are for God's glory and for you to serve. The Bible says, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor. Give him the glory, serve your neighbor. Don't seek glory for yourself by trying to use your neighbor. Common example, if you are at, let's say, the mall, and you're walking along, and you see somebody, and you think, oh, that's a problem. And let's say you're with your significant other, and your temptation is to lie about what you just saw and be like, ah, ugh, I'm not into that, ugh. Don't fight sin with sin. Don't fight lust with lies. You don't have to pretend that people aren't attractive. But you also don't have to indulge it and chase it down. You can just dismiss it for what it is. Guys, I give you permission to take it lightly. Now, this whole sermon is about taking sin seriously. The way we take it seriously is by not making too much of ourselves. Just look, look you notice it because you're just a person, you have eyeballs in your head, then look away and be like, well, that's one way to live your life. And ladies, if your guy does that, be content with that and don't force him don't force him to lie. Don't be like, well, I bet you thought she was attractive. I bet that's going to be a problem for you later. It's like, it would only be a problem if we continue to like make it a bigger deal than it is. I can kill it right now if I just dismiss it as silliness and move on with my life. Just, but don't fight lust with lies. Don't pretend that stuff isn't attractive. Train yourself. You're a man. Take control of yourself and dismiss it as silly. That's how you take sin seriously. Like you take it seriously by not indulging it and not by lying about it in order to try and move past it. And, and if that is your man, ladies, don't try and force him to lie about it. Don't try and be like, well, I bet you really thought she was cute. Do you wish I looked like my lad? Do you wish I had pants like that? Do you wish I It's like, oh my word, stop chasing this thing down. I just want to kill it and be done with it. Stop resurrecting it from the dead. <laughs> I already murdered it. Why do you keep showing me the corpse? Let's just be, move on. Let's be done with it. Another thing in this example he gives is a man looking at a woman, but lust is not limited to that. We all know that, right? It's the most common, ordinary example you could probably access if you're trying to think of what lust. It's the example we would all think of if we were just coming up with one off the top of our head. But we know this thing isn't limited. Using people to our own ends is not something that just men do. Women can do it as well. And it happens all over. And they do it in any number of ways, either trying to get people to think something about you or thinking something about other people that isn't true of them. Men typically like to look, and they like to look at lots of different things. That's why when they have problems like with pornography, they usually spread themselves thin all over the place. And when this problem manifests itself in the other direction, when it's you seeking glory for yourself, it's never enough to have just one person think you're cute. It's never enough just to have one like on your Instagram feed. It's always the desire for more. It's the the desire to use people to get something out of them. So if you have six-pack abs, why do you, you need the world to know that? Like, if you do, that's awesome. Great job. You have a lot of discipline or a high metabolism. I'm not sure. Or you're 19. <laughs> and, you know, like, great for you. That's awesome. Like, just wait till you're 40. <laughs> but, but, like, if that's you, why do I need to know that you work out? Why does your Instagram feed need to do that? What, what are you using people for? Why do you need them to like it? What do you get by it? And the, the, the 
thesis is tested by, and if they do, what do you do with it? So what? You got somebody's attention. Now what? You think of like a dog chasing a car down a country road. It wants the car. It's fast and it's kicking up dust and I chase it. And then imagine if you're ever on a gravel road, just stop and watch the dog and totally mystified, be like, no, what do I do? The dog has no idea what it wants to do with the car. It just knows it wants to chase it. But the second it has the car, it has no idea what to do with it. That's a lot of you young guys. You have zero idea of what you would do with a girl if she stopped and said, okay, all that attention, let's, let's do this. Let's, let's, be, let's be you and me and let's get married. And you're like, oh, whoa, why are you coming on so heavy? It's like, you're the one chasing me all over the place. And ladies, if you're getting attention from people, why is it not, a, like, what are you training yourself to get used to? Do you need everybody to think you're cute? Why? If the goal is to get married, you just want your husband to think you're cute. Like, you, you don't need everybody, you don't need that kind of attention coming at you. Will it ever be enough to have one person who thinks you're everything to them? Or do you need to be a little bit of something to every person you meet? It can work both ways, and it can work over both genders. Lust is not unique to men or women, and it's not unique even just to outward or inward, but it's the manifestation of using other people as plot devices in your story. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says in The Four Loves. I don't have it on a slide, just listen to what he says here. He says, we say that a lustful man prowling the streets wants a woman. Strictly speaking, a woman is just what he does not want. He wants a pleasure for which a woman happens to be the necessary piece of apparatus. How much he cares about the woman as such may be gauged by his attitude to her five minutes after. When we use people, we don't care about them. And it's evidenced by what happens once you get what you want from them. Once you get the attention, do you care? Once you look at the thing, do you need anything else out of it? After you drink the milk, you don't keep the carton. What we do with, but these are human beings we're talking about. And that's why Jesus says the problem with lust is that we turn people into objects of things that we use to get stuff out of or things we project our stuff onto. And then when we're done, we move away. We walk on, we move on because we've gotten what we want out of them. Jesus having provided us with this example now prescribes a solution. The thing to keep in mind is the medicine, just a general rule of thumb, the medicine should never be ickier than the illness, right? So if something's gross, you might expect a, a, a solution that the doctor might prescribe you something pretty gross, but it might balance out. It should be in proportion to the thing, but nobody takes cyanide for a headache. It would get rid of your headache because you'd be dead because <laughs> cyanide kills people <laughs> in case you didn't know that. <laughs> It's out of proportion. The, the side effects exceed the symptoms. Like, oh, doctor, I have a headache. It's like, well, I need to cut your head off. It's like, ah, I don't know about that. <laughs> you know, it's like, that sounds like too much. So reverse engineering that, whatever the prescription to something is, you can follow it back up and be like, whatever is up there is worse than this. And especially when the great physician is Jesus, who would never prescribe something worse than it's necessary. He would never make it harder or grosser than it has to be in order for it to work out, right? So given that, look at what he prescribes as a solution to this problem. Verses 29 and 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. 
We get so used to sometimes hearing these kind of things, and we've, the Sermon on the Mount is very famous, so if you've been around church, you've probably heard it. Even if you haven't been around church, you may have heard this, but let me just restate this just so you hear crystal clear what Jesus is actually saying. We get so used to Jesus and his you know, shampooed hair that we forget that this is really aggressive. If your eye causes you to sin, use your own fingers tear out your eyeball and throw it away. For it would be better to enter heaven with an eye patch than to, go to he- than to go to hell wearing your cool sunglasses. It would be better to be a cyclops, a monster, and go to heaven than to have perfect periphery vision, perfect depth perception, and get to experience the world with two eyes, cool sunglasses, on your way to hell. It would be better. That's how severe. Now, look what he says. If your hand causes you to sin, take your other hand and cut it off. Throw it away. For it would be better to enter heaven one-handed than to go to hell clapping for yourself. It would be better to miss out on all the things that two-handed people get to do and save your soul than to get to do all the things two-handed people to do and at the end go to hell. That is bad-tasting medicine. That's icky. Any kid would spit that out. You need a lot of sugar to help that medicine go down, Mary Poppins. So if that is the solution, if that's the solution, how bad is the situation? If the solution is cut your hand off and throw it away, then how bad is the situation? Like, follow the logic back upstream. That's how bad things are, if that would be preferable. A few observations about what he prescribes. Listen to the presuppositions that are behind. In order to even prescribe this, look what he must assume. There's an assumed you. You've been in grammar classes. You've been in English classes before. There's an implied you. It says, if your right hand causes you to sin, you tear it out. If your right hand causes you to sin, you, in parentheses, you cut it off. This is your problem to deal with. Your sin is yours. Too many times we make this about cutting other people's hands off. You hear the sermon right now, you're like, I know somebody who needs to hear this sermon. It's like, and I know where a knife is. It's like, let them, he said, cut your own hand off, not cut off your neighbor's hand. There's an implied you. This is your responsibility. You need to own your sin, and you need to know where it is. That's the second thing. He assumes that you know where it is. It's not hypothetical. This isn't some floaty hypothetical sin. It's real, tangible, as, as plain as the hand in front of your face. That kind of sin, it's obvious. If you, if you have this going on in your life currently, you know what it is. You don't need to ask a bunch of probing questions and like, in, in Christian, sensitive Christian who's, who's just crushing it in life right now, don't spend the rest of your day trying to drudge up sin somewhere. <laughs> like this, the, wrong, the thing about messages like this is the people that don't need to hear it will kill themselves the rest of the day over it. And the people who actually need to hear this are missing it right now as I'm talking. If this is happening, you know where it is. You know what the thing is that has to go. You need to make it go away. You need to act on it. By the end of the day, that needs to be your plan. Not where do we eat lunch, but get rid of this thing. You know where it is. You cut it off. And listen, look, there's an assumed temptation to recycle. (laughs) Do you see that? Jesus preaches against recycling. You see that? He says, for it is better that you lose one of your members be thrown in hell. Throw it away. (laughs) Cut it off and throw it away. Don't put it in the recycle bin and turn it into something else. Don't put it on ice. Don't take your hand and be like, well, maybe someday I can reattach it. Ooh, my poor precious hand. I love that hand so much. Oh, I remember all the things I looked at it with that eyeball. 
Yeah, me too. We all look at stuff. Don't put it on ice in hopes that, oh man, I can't wait to be reunited with this sin someday because that's what's really precious to me. I'll do it if I love Jesus and all. I mean, if that's what I'm supposed to do, but like, I'm going to keep it around. I'm going to scrapbook it. I'm going to remember the good times. Don't be, like, don't be like the Israelites coming out of Egypt with their scrapbook of all the onions and leeks and all the good dishes they used to be able to make when they were slaves being murdered by Pharaoh. Like, oh, remember the good times when we used to have onions? Like, I think you're remembering that wrong. <laughs> there may have been onions, but do you remember the other stuff? Like the making bricks all day and stuff? No? Okay. Don't give in to the temptation to, to have empathy with your sin. Don't love it too much. Cut it off and throw it away. Treat it severely. Don't keep it around like a pet. Don't try and train it. Don't try and teach it new tricks. It can't. It doesn't want to. It wants to kill you, and that's all. Cut it off and be done with it. Make plans to be done with it. Don't make your plans some kind of like, well, maybe for a disease and I'll, I'll fast from it, and then I'll bring it back. If it's sin, cut it off. And listen, there's an assumed pushback. Do you see that? He has to, even in his logic, he's saying, for it is better, it is better. He's like, I get that you're not going to want to do this. I get that it sounds severe to say, hey, hey, young man, you should cut your hand off. He gets that you're like, yeah, I don't want to do that. <laughs> yeah, he, he knows. He's like, that's why I have to tell you, it, it, it is better to do this. I promise you, it is better to do this kind of thing, to take sin this seriously and save your soul than it is to take sin lightly and go to hell and wish you had. Don't take sin lightly. There is an assumed pushback that you have to have the long view in mind here. Think about your soul. Think about eternity. I know today is right in front of you. But think about eternity. Think about the fact that you are eternal right now, even though you live today. Look at Proverbs 23, 17 through 18. I have it up on a slide for you. This isn't a new problem. This has been going on long enough that even back when Solomon wrote these, it was a problem. Let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all day. Surely there is a future and your hope will not be cut off. Don't envy people who get to have two hands while they sin with them. If God has called you to lose one of your hands or one of your eyes, don't envy people who get to keep both of theirs. Either God's got different plans for them or they're doing sinful things that they should repent of and cut it off. Don't envy the fact that they get to do all this two-handed, two-eyeballed stuff. Don't envy them, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. Surely there's a future. Your hope will not be cut off. Your hope will not be cut off. If you cut off your sin, there is hope. If you cling to your hope, you cut yourself off from hope. It is better to have one hand in your hope than it is to have both hands and no hope. But remember where Jesus said all this started with. We've been talking a lot about hands and eyeballs and getting real earthy. <laughs> like, whoa, that's real life. That's, that's crime scene stuff we're talking about here. This is adult television. But where did Jesus say the problem was? Is, it, is, it, is the problem of sin that you have too many hands? Or you have too many eyes? Is having less hands or less eyeballs solve the problem? No, where did Jesus say from the get-go the problem is? Where do you commit adultery? Not in other people's beds, but with your heart. The problem is in your heart. So I get it. If the problem is my eye, tear it out. If the problem is my hand, cut it off. But what do you do if the problem is your heart? Can you just rip that thing out? You can if you want to die. <laughs> it's like, well, you're telling me I need a new heart. If I cut my heart out, I'll die. Yeah, Exactly you will have to die. The problem is that serious, that somebody's going to have to die. You're like, sin can't just be re remedied by having less hands. You need a different heart. Like, but I can't do that. Like, yeah, I know. Like, well, that's a problem for me. <laughs> like, I know. 
That's what Jesus is driving you towards. You have a problem you can't fix. You have a problem that is too big for you to fix with makeup and a box cutter and good medicine or even, even chemotherapy. Can't reach it. You need a new heart, which is something you cannot do because you don't have two of them. You don't have a spare heart laying around. And even if you did, you couldn't cut yourself open and put it in. You couldn't survive it. You're going to need somebody else to die in order to have a heart for you. And you're going to need somebody else to cut you open and put that in. And you're going to have to entrust yourself to to the procedure. In order to fix this problem, you're going to need surgery. Look what it says in Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27. Have it on a slide for you. This is God speaking. He says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Who will do it? God. The hope of the Christian life is that God will do what we cannot do. God will do what only he can do. So a problem so bad that we couldn't touch it. Even if we wanted to, even if your best intentions were to try and fix it, you couldn't. You couldn't get radical enough. You couldn't cut off enough hands to fix the problem. You couldn't do it. Because the problem is your heart, and if you do that, you would die. The problem is you need a new heart. Christina, in her prayer earlier, thanked God for waking up this morning. Every day is like, a, is like the resurrection on small scale. Every day, you woke up this morning, you're here, your eyes woke up. You're at the late service, so you got to sleep more than most. But you, you woke up this morning, praise God, and you will live your day today, you'll eat your food, You'll talk to people, and then you will lay yourself down tonight, and you will entrust yourself to a faithful creator who oversees the nighttime hours when you are not in control. You're not telling yourself to breathe. You're not making your heart beat. You lay yourself down in death every night, trusting that in the morning you will rise. And that is a small-scale hope of what the Christian life is. We live our lives before God and man in the broad daylight, and we will lay them down in the one hope that at the end, he will open our eyes and that we will be raised in our bodies to new life in eternity, world without end. That is the Christian hope. And every day you experience that on small scale. Every day is a resurrection. You will lay your life down tonight. You will trust to God. You will not make yourself wake up. You might think you do. You might think that you have this clock that you have timed and I can make myself wake up whatever time. You, you might have trained yourself, but you can't make yourself wake up. You're not in control of yourself while you're sleeping. You have subjected yourself to God. And every morning when you wake up, you should look up and say, praise God for the resurrection. This is a small-scale hope of what I look forward to. Can you imagine at the end of your life, you will close your eyes in death and just like 7 a.m. on a Sunday morning, you will wake up resurrected to a new, better world, a world that you've longed for, a world that you wanted to see be made manifest here, one that you'll have to wait for perfectly later. But every day is an attempt to practice the reality of the resurrection and that our hope as Christians is that that will be our life story. And live that today in small scale. Live your life before God, praising him, loving your neighbor, and then lay that life down and trust it to him and say, God, I know it hasn't been enough. I know it hasn't been perfect, but I trust the blood of your son. And I trust that when I lay myself down in death and close my eyes, I will wake up tomorrow morning and get a chance in fresh new mercies and grace to do it all over again because that's just practicing for the world that you hope to inherit someday. That is the world that Christians long for. 
You know, all this talk about now focusing on our hearts now, don't lose sight of the first fact that God really does care about our bodies and what we do with them, right? It's not just like God cares about our hearts and he's just going to resurrect a bunch of hearts and then give them little RC cars to toot around on because the bodies are stupid and we don't like those, but hearts are what God really cares about. God cares about hearts because they make bodies go. Hearts are the central part of a person. They make the whole person go and everything that you do flows out of the heart and it's connected to it. God cares about your body. Don't forget that as you focus on the heart stuff. Don't then lose sight of your hands. So it's a both and proposition. You can't save yourself. You need a new heart. But with that heart, he will put that back. You, see that, you saw that in Ezekiel. He'll put it in your body and now cause you to obey him with that new body being operated under new management. First Peter 2.11 says it this way, Beloved, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from the desires of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Your body and your soul are connected. What's happening in your body, what you're doing with it, affects your soul and vice versa. Don't treat this thing as a light matter. Sin is at war against you and it wants to kill you. If you have sin, cut it off. Cut it out. Be done with it. Entrust yourself to God. Don't look around and envy those who get to do stuff that you don't get to do. If it's a problem for you, cut it off and be done with it. And stop envying people who either are doing it, or if, they're, if it's something nobody should do, then go be a friend to them. Tell them that they shouldn't do it. Love them enough, but don't do it before you cut your own hand off. Do that first. Remove the speck, and then go worry about, worry about the other people's. Sin is at war with you. It uses camouflage. It puts up landmines. It wants to destroy you. It's trying to trick you. Take ownership of it. Abstain from the desires of the flesh. Tell yourself, no, you have permission. Say no to yourself. It's fun. <laughs> it's fun to know that you can do it. Do you know that you can? People, you can say no to yourself. Practice it. Get in the habit of doing it. Learn how to take responsibility. Discipline yourself. Sin is serious. It wants to kill you. You cannot argue with it. You can't sit down and have a conversation. It's war. Look at what John Owen says. I will leave it with this. His quote says this. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. If you do not declare war on sin, it doesn't mean you're not at war. It just means that you are defenseless. You are being warred against. Will you fight back, Christian? Will you have hope in the resurrection? And will that come out? Your theology comes out your fingertips. You've heard me say it before. What you believe in your heart comes out your fingertips. It should. So if you believe that, may it change the way you act and behave. We began by asking the question, how serious is sin? As we respond in communion, that's how serious sin is. How serious is sin? Somebody had to die. And not just anybody. The perfect son of God lived his life, never sinning, never giving into temptation, never doing any of the things that you shouldn't have done, always doing all the things that you should have done, and then laid down his life sacrificially and was slaughtered on a cross unjustly for nothing that he did of his own. Why? Because sin is serious. If you ever have the question, how serious is sin? Look to communion. The body broken, the blood poured out. If it wasn't that serious, God wouldn't have done it. Remember our rule about the medicine not being ickier than the illness. God didn't go overboard. That's what was necessary to save you. Nothing short of Jesus' death could ever save you. That's how serious the problem is. And if that is the solution then understand how bad and grave our situation is without him.
if we resort to a life of cutting our own hands off in order to try and save ourselves. We can't. We can't get there. We can't get deep enough. Look what Matthew 20, 28 says. I'll leave you with this verse as we, the band comes up and we begin to take communion. Matthew 20, 28 says, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We're studying the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' famous sermon. What we needed was not just clarification. Jesus did not come down, take on flesh, humiliate himself, just to say, hey, you guys have heard some stuff, but you got it wrong. Actually, it was this other thing. You guys, somebody should no- take a note. Okay, you got it, Peter? Good. Okay, I'm going to go back home now, because what you needed was just a clarification. You had gotten the facts out of sorts. So I'm a good teacher, and I'm going to come teach you what's correct, and then I'm going to bounce, okay? We good? Jesus came and gave his life as a ransom for many because there was no other way. Sin is that serious. Somebody had to die. And in, the, and in the crucifixion, we see Jesus become not only our surgeon, who's willing to cut us open and take out our heart, but he's willing to die to provide us with the donor heart that we need. In order to be saved, we need a heart surgery. We need a heart transplant. Jesus gave up his perfect heart in order for us to have one. And then he's the surgeon who cuts us open and does the operation for us on our behalf. May we put our hope in him as we celebrate communion, looking to his body, his blood that was poured out for us. May we receive that new heart. And then in that, may we work hard with our hands, with our eyes to do what he's called us to do, cutting out sin wherever we see it, encouraging our brothers and sisters in Christ to do the same, loving our God and pointing everything back to the resurrection hope that we hope to be resurrected someday, just like we do every morning when we wake up. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of your son. Thank you for him as a teacher, that he came down and he did clarify things. We thought that just not spending time in other people's bedrooms would solve our problem. We thought if we stayed away from that, I could die and expect to meet you with fanfare and a parade. That's what I thought. I thought I could clean myself up well enough. I thought I had sacrificed enough petty smaller things in order to be pure in your sight. I thought I had done what you required. Thank you for clarifying that it is far worse than that. I did not appreciate the problem of my sin until you showed me, just through the power of your word, how bad it really was. Amazing grace taught me to fear, and fear, grace relieved. You not only brought the fear, the appreciation for how bad the situation was, you didn't just pull me into that room to tell me how bad the test results were, that I had a deadly disease, you then turned around and said, but I have a solution. I will die. I will be your physician. I will die and I will give you my heart. You didn't just break the bad news that we were terminally ill. You gave your life so that we might live. And then you rose again on the third day to show that you were triumphant over sin, Satan, and death. That is our hope, God. May we put our hope in you. Help us to trust that alone and then through that, live our lives before you in Christian hope, cutting off sin where we see it living lives of holiness for your sake, not so that we get glory, so that you get glory. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.